This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Hey, Renegades, welcome back. Today, I'm going to introduce you to Lynn Power. She has spent much of her 30-year career running and transforming agency brands. She has worked with some of the top well-known brands in the world, and I'm not going to name drop them here. She's going to tell you all about them throughout this episode. But what's more important is she learned a lot along the way. She recently left the big agency world to launch two brands. Today, we're going to talk about her work with Masami, a premium clean hair care brand which launched in February 2020. Now, as many of you have probably personally experienced, launching in February 2020 set you up for a rough road to growth, but Lynn and her co-founder have tackled that head on, and she's got some amazing, somewhat innovative strategies for growing in this brave new world in which we're all trying to scale. So I am going to stop talking, let you listen to her story straight from her mouth. And don't forget that when you visit lovemasami.com, you can get 20% off with code Renegade. Right now, we'll get started. I'd like to introduce you to Lynn Power. Hey there, Lynn. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So let's start at the very beginning. I always start here. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my God. I actually (laughs) wanted to be an FBI agent. Oh, cool. I don't think I've heard that one before. Yeah. I wanted to be Clarice Starling. And actually when I graduated college, I applied, but it was 1989 and there was a hiring freeze and I got a form letter because of course there's no internet back then. I got a form letter (laughs) that basically said, well, you're in, meaning like you passed the interview and the written test, but there's a hiring freeze. So check back in in six months. Okay. So obviously something else happened. What happened in those six months? Well, let's just say I was living with my parents okay. and I didn't think I could do that for another six months mm-hmm. without like, you know, going crazy. And so I decided, you know, I really do need a job. I met a recruiter who basically said to me, I know what you're going to do. You're going to, you're going to go into advertising. And I was like, what advertising? Mm-hmm. Why? What's that all about? And she said, just trust me. I typed really well. So she loved that. So she said, I'm going to send you on an interview they're going to hire you to be a receptionist. Just take the job. You're going to love it. And she was right. Mm-hmm. They literally hired me on the spot because I could type really well and I could answer the phones. And that was not, <laughs> it was not a high bar. Right. And then from there, you know, I love the culture. I love the people. I love the business. And I just kind of worked my way up. What was the next step from being an admin to really getting your feet wet in advertising? Well, once I kind of got the lay of the land, I mean, being a receptionist is a great way to start. I know some people feel like I have a college degree and, you know, but think about it this way. You are on the front line and you get to see everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Every single person walks through the door. You get to kind of overhear the conversations of how they talk to clients, how they're talking about business problems. And so you really are a fly on the wall. And that was invaluable. So I did it for about six months. And then they promoted me to an account coordinator, which is an account management role within advertising, which at the time there was no strategy roles. This was pre account planning. So the account people really were the ones that kind of dictated the strategy for the client and pulled in the resources and the creative and whatnot. You're kind of the quarterback of the team. Right. So I like that. So I started at the bottom rung, of course, where you're doing a lot of administrative stuff for the account you're on. I was on the Pizza Hut account. Very cool. It is, but it's interesting because I feel like they have the same issues today that they did like 30 years ago. Like some things never change, right? They're still in business, but they've always struggled. And it's like, there are better restaurants coming out. And how do you get more families in? It's like the same problems. But anyway. Right. (laughs) Yeah. so So I did that. And I just really loved it because I loved the idea of using creativity to solve business problems. Mm-hmm. It's very left-right brain combo. Which I love that. I think is why I wanted to go in the FBI because that's about solving problems too, right? Right. Just different kinds. So I think at the end of the day, when I sort of peel the onion back, that's what I was kind of attracted to. And that's why I think I liked advertising so much. I love that. There's a lot of little golden nuggets <laughs> in, in what you've just shared. And I really see the threads between the way your brain works and the kind of projects that you like to work on and how that connects to both the FBI and the advertising industry. So talk to me a little bit about this career, what direction it went in and how it ultimately led you to become an entrepreneur. So I was in Chicago. I was at a small agency and I thought, you know what, this is great. I worked my way up the Pizza Hut chain, if you will, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be like an account executive, right? Okay. So the way it worked is the agency I worked at handled a couple of the franchise businesses in certain states. It was like a territories that Pizza Hut ran. Makes sense. And so they're called DMAs. I oversaw like Louisville and Indiana, you know, certain territories. And I really liked it, but I did it for three years and I decided, you know what, I really need to go somewhere that is more of a bigger agency where I can learn on bigger established clients and things like that. So I end up getting a job at Ogilvy and Mather in Chicago and Ogilvy is, you know, an iconic agency. David Ogilvy was still alive back then. Mm-hmm. And I worked on American Express. I worked on Illinois Tourism. I worked on NutraSuite back when it was sort of early days. And that was really, really enjoyable. Back in those days, there was no problem with like dating your coworkers. I right. know, but- Ogilvy in advertising is a little looser anyway, no issue there. And I was dating a, another account person so who was my boyfriend, and he got an opportunity to move to New York because Ogilvy had just won the IBM business, which was huge, and they were looking to staff up all across the, the globe. And um, I kind of decided, you know what, I'm going to go to New York too, because if I want to stay in advertising, which I do, you got to be in New York. Yeah, I mean, it's. Sense really the only place to be. So I decided to move as well. I actually had a week long of interviews. I don't know how I pulled this off because again, this was like pre-email when it wasn't like email was widely used. It was like you had to fax or mail like your resume. It seems crazy now. Doesn't it? 
I can't even believe I was alive then. Like that's how crazy it seems <laughs> to me because it's like, what you did what? But you literally used to have to mail in your resume. I found actually funny enough, I was cleaning out my house and I found a pack of resume paper that had not been opened. And I'm <laughs> thinking who would ever use this these days, right? Like you would never even need that. But anyway, let's just say I managed to line up like 20 interviews over a week. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know how I was able to do that with the technology being what it was because people take time to get back to you and figure all that yeah, out. It's really I think also, so I got a whole bunch of interviews and I ended up with two job offers at the end of the week. And I wow. had one from a really cool small agency that I loved, really wanted to go there. They had accounts like Ferrari and just really cool accounts, but they were small, like kind of like the first agency I'd been at. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm thinking, if I really want a New York experience, I got to go to one of the big iconic agencies. It's a little bit like taking my medicine, right? So I ended up going to work for Gray, which at the time was exactly what the name sounds like. It was a really boring insurance-like ad agency, which was a little eye-opening for me because I was like, wait, I thought you're supposed to be creative. Right. We're in New York City. And it was like, ooh. So you've gone from agency to agency to agency yeah. at this point. Talk to me a little bit about the moment that you got going with your own startup. So I was at JWT. I was running the New York office, which was huge. JJ, for anyone who doesn't know, J. Walter Thompson was one of the largest, and, and it was actually the oldest ad agency in the world. So I was the CEO, and it wasn't really very fun. <laughs> you know, People think that being the CEO is really glamorous, But you end up dealing with most of the crap, right? Like all the problems end up on your lap. I had HR issues. There was a big public lawsuit against our global CEO. That was quite painful. There just was finance meetings every day and just the stuff that I didn't enjoy. And so I just thought, you know what? Life's too short. I'm not getting any younger. I've done everything I want to do in advertising. There's really nothing left for me to do here. I think I need to do it for myself now. Take control back. So I decided to leave. I was actually doing some consulting and I really enjoyed that because I was working with startups and it was almost like going back to my early days at Pizza Hut where you're hands-on and you're working with the franchisees. Because when I was, you know, the CEO and I, and a lot of my subsequent jobs, I talked about Gillette and L'Oreal, you're in a corporate environment where there's so so much bureaucracy that even if you have the most brilliant idea in the world, that's going to like 10X their business It takes them like five years to implement it. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. You just don't see stuff move. But when you're working with a startup, you and I could be having this conversation and I could say to you, hey, have you ever thought about putting your podcast on the women's forum to, to interview some of those women? And you're like, oh my God. And the next day you do it. Do you know what I mean? It's like that that. simple, right? It's that simple. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like literally the conversation we had. I'm seeing your website updated. I'm seeing the copy change. Mm -hmm. That to me was much more exciting. And then I met my co-founder, James, who had been working on our hair care business for like 10 years. He'd been working on formulas. He didn't know what to do with them, but he was working on formulas. He was a beauty guy. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, he'd done 10 years and gotten them to the point where they were pretty darn good. Yeah. So when I met him, he was like, look, I have these things. I think they're pretty much done, but I don't know what to do with them. And I was like, I know what to do with them. So we did a little more tweaking in the formulas to make them clean. We did tons of consumer testing. We created the brand. Masami, by the way, has two meanings. One is his husband's name is Masa, Masahiro, who's Japanese. And he's the guy that inspired our hero ingredient. 
And then secondly, it means truly beautiful in Japanese. Oh, wow. So, That's all very beautiful. <laughs> I love how it right? just ties together. Yeah. It was one of those things when we came up with the branding that was like a goosebump moment. Mm-hmm. And I remember it. I was in a bar in Chicago with actually one of my early bosses, who I still am friends with, and James, my co-founder. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, yeah, the brand really, you know, the name has to convey our values and it has to be meaningful, but it has to be memorable and it has to be trademarkable. And like, we're coming right. up all with the all things. these things that we need to do, right? And then we're like, you know, Masa was our muse, is our muse. He's James's husband, you know we should come up with something that really represents that. And so we started playing around with Masa, this, Masa, that, whatever, different ways to add something to Masa. And we came up with Masami and we look it up and it was like literally, truly beautiful. And I was like, oh. we all like had goosebumps. We're like, oh. and then of course I search, I do a trademark search. I'm like, it's available. Oh my God, that's it. And so it's those moments when the universe is telling you something. Mm-hmm. And you have to listen because it's like, come on, that's so obvious, right? And you just have to embrace it and be happy that that happened. And then we launched in February of 2020, right? Right before COVID hit New York City, we launched at New York Fashion Week, which was quite interesting. And it's been a (laughs) crazy two years. Hey, it's Shauna here. I want to take a quick break from this amazing episode to send a free resource your way. Starting up is hard. Whether you're bootstrapping or you've got some funding behind you, you don't always know exactly where to start. I want to fix that. You head to startuprenegades.com right now. You can claim your free business benchmark blueprint. That's a mouthful. It's going to help you set a plan in place so you can create your foundation for growth. And it's free, so why not? Head to startuprenegades.com right now and grab yours. So I want to talk about growth, but just because of the tone of your voice, I want to hear about launching at New York Fashion Week because I feel like there's a really good story there. Well, it's not so much a good story as just the reality of the times. When you do a show at New York Fashion Week, if anyone's ever gone to New York Fashion Week, they'll know Mm -hmm. most of the shows are lots and lots of people crammed in very small rooms where the chairs are like this. And because they want to get as many people in to see these shows, right? So you're literally like, and this was literally only three weeks before lockdown of COVID. Mm -hmm. So here we are. And the show was over. We had two shows. One was oversold and there are people banging on the window trying to get in. And the place literally could not hold another human. It was that packed. Just to think back at that, how surreal it was Mm -hmm. that we did that. And then only a few weeks later, it was like, COVID. Yeah. You can't do that anymore. And so it was a weird moment in time for sure. Can you talk to me a little bit about the logistics on that? Because I have a friend that presented at New York Fashion Week, but she had a handbag company at the time. So I'm trying to fit in my brain how a hair care company, where it fits in to do a launch at New York Fashion Week. Right. We didn't do our own show. Okay. We were part of other shows. So we were part of an Adelinda sustainable fashion show, Mm -hmm. which was great. She highlights sustainable designers. Mm -hmm. The Adelinda founder is named Kristen, and she brings in like these cool four or five designers and we did the hair. Okay. So that's how we participated in the New York Fashion Week shows, which was great. And then we had gift bags, like VIP bags for people where we gave products away and awesome stuff like that. Yeah. And she promoted us. And so it was a great way to launch because it just felt, I mean, we're a New York based brand. So it just felt very authentic for us mm-hmm. and to be associated 
with a sustainable brand was great because that's really important to us too. Right about now is usually when I ask, okay, so you've done all of this, right? All the pieces are coming together. You are an expert in marketing and advertising. You have your co-founder who is an expert on the formula side. You've created a really amazing product. How did you get your first customer? Now I'm thinking that you probably from those gift bags and the exposure, you got some customers from New York Fashion Week. So the next big question is, From the marketing and growth side of things, what did you do to scale? So it's been an interesting, I'll call it an experiment because, okay, let me back up and just share some of that. So our business plan involved what I call DTC plus. So heavy Mm -hmm. DTC orientation. So we had an e-com site that we built with all the bells and whistles, right? Right. But I believe that you have to go where customers are. And it's really hard to get people to your site these days without spending a lot of money. And we're bootstrapped and we're scrappy. So we don't have tons of money to throw at that. So we're also on Amazon because people are on Amazon. All of our competitors are on Amazon. So that's just sort of a reality. And Amazon's actually been pretty good for us, but we wanted to get into salons. That was like a big part of our business plan, which launching during COVID, not going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. We really refocused on our own business. But one of the things that we did that was really great was we we did a lot of the usual suspects, right? We did Facebook ads, Instagram mm-hmm. ads. Actually, found Pinterest was really good at driving traffic to our site. Not so good conversion, but really mm-hmm. good at driving traffic. We started with our email strategy. Email works really well for brands like ours. Our list was 2,500 when we started. Now it's over 30,000. So we were doing a lot of things to kind of just almost what I call hand-to-hand combat. Mm -hmm. You're dealing at the level of trying to win people over one-on-one. You don't have mass media at your fingertips. But I would do things for exposure, i.e. like podcasts. Podcasts have been great for us, actually. Okay. Well, because we get to tell kind of a bigger story and it's been really good. So anyway... One of the best things we did though, and I think this is something that any brand can do, is we did a lot of really successful brand partnerships with other like-minded brands. Okay. So we happen to be in the clean beauty space, right? My product's clean hair care, but we would partner with clean skincare, a sun care brand, a makeup brand, all clean. And we would do giveaways. We would do gift with purchase exchanges. Mm-hmm. We would do blog posts. We would do live streaming. We just started to do a bunch of stuff. And that was really what allowed us to grow our list and our social following because Mm. if you find that it takes a little experimentation because you have to make sure the brand values align because if you don't have a brand where you guys share a lot of the same ethos, then their customers are not going to appreciate you and vice versa. And you're going to end up getting unsubscribed and people, you know, following you for the giveaway and unfollowing you later. You don't want that. Yeah. You want to have people where they go, oh, I'm discovering this other brand and I love this brand over here. So I'm going to love that brand. Mm -hmm. That works really well. And so we were doing that and we really just started doing more and more of that because it was one of the bright spots. And the other beauty of it is it doesn't cost a lot. Most of the time it's giving away product or giving, you know, samples or you're giving your time. Mm-hmm. you're spending your time, but you're not really spending money per se. So that's another way that I always say, and it doesn't matter if you're in the B2B space or B2C space or D2C space, you can find brands that are complementary to yours to be able to take the strategy and apply it for sure. What we ended up doing is going into this year, 
We are looking at our business. We're trying to see what worked, what didn't, what do we want to continue and what do we want to stop? And I think that's a good exercise for anyone kind of as you close up a year and you're going to the new year, you know, really have that like introspection to see what makes sense. Because if you keep doing the same thing, but you expect continued growth, that's challenging. Like Mm -hmm. if you're growing at 10% and you're thinking, I just need that one thing to hit and it's going to double me the chances of that happening are slim to none, right? Right. And I don't mean to be cynical. It's just realistic. So you have to try different things and you have to see what stuff starts to give you bigger growth. And so we decided to double down on this idea of brand partnerships. And we actually launched a pop-up store called the Conscious Beauty Collective with my brand and 30 something other brands. We have 36 in the store now, 30 something other brands that Mm -hmm. are all indie brands They're all about conscious beauty or wellness. We have brands that are bath products to skincare products to CBD supplements. And we got a space at the Stonestown Gallery in San Francisco for three months. We started with two months and we extended a month because it was really successful. Mm -hmm. And now we're moving to the Natick Mall in Boston in September. That's awesome. And because my thing is like, if you really think about it, when you're on your own and you're tiny, like we are, it's very difficult to make a dent. Mm -hmm. We don't have the financial ability to reach lots of people. But if you put together 30 brands like us, we added up our Instagram followers just on Instagram. It was over 600,000. Right. Like that's pretty powerful. It's really powerful. Right. Now we we're running my team, which basically is me and one of my people on my team, Kristen, we run the whole thing. Mm-hmm. We've made it really turnkey for the brands. But one of our requirements is that you have to be generous. You have to be willing to shout out the other brands. We want you to come to the store so you can mm-hmm. be do a meet the founder event. Because we found that when there's engagement like that, it's like exponential. It really helps everybody. And so we're learning as we go, but it's been really fun. We've met awesome founders. I mean, really incredible founders. Um, 30 of our founders are women. Okay. And it wasn't that I was only going to get women, but it just, I gravitated there. And then there were a couple guys we just felt like, we have to be inclusive. We'll let a couple guys in, you know? (laughs) Uh, It was like that. So the Boston place is, it's spectacular. Mm -hmm. This is what I mean. Like you got to just put yourself out there and take control. Because otherwise, the retail environment's tough, and it's tough for a brand like ours to be successful because the retailers expect you to create demand for your products and bring people into the store. And when you're tiny, you kind of want the opposite. You want the retailer to have their customers discover you, and so you're both unsatisfied. But if you take control of it and create your own experience like we did, then it's not easy. I don't want to sugarcoat it and make it sound like, oh, piece of cake. But it's also not rocket science. And you can do it in a way where you see what works, you build on it, you learn, you grow, you do more. So that was so insightful. You've shared so many good things today. As you can see, I'm like going crazy over here taking notes. Thank you Uh for sharing all that. It's been amazing to hear about your personal journey and the journey of this company that you're building right now. Can you tell me, answer the big question for me? What does it mean to you to be a startup renegade? Okay, I've said it, I think already, but take control. Mm -hmm. Take control, challenge the status quo. Don't be afraid to do something nobody's done before. Mm. If you fail, who cares? It's learning, move on. 
And by the way, you're never too old. I mean, I was 52 when I launched my businesses Mm -hmm. and I have people saying to me, oh God, I don't have the energy. It's like, no, come on. That's ridiculous. If you're (laughs) complacent, if you're not happy in your situation, there's no reason you can't find something that you're going to love and it's never too late. I love that. Thank you so much for being here, Lynn. Can you tell everybody where they can find you online? Of course. I'm always happy to do that. Yeah. So we're at lovemasami.com. L-O-V-E-M-A-S-A-M-I.com. Our social handle is Love Masami Hair Everywhere, even TikTok, even at my okay. age. We're doing TikToks. <laughs> and then for me personally, I'm I'm Lynn Powered online on social. And I'm on LinkedIn and I'm easy to find. And I do respond if you know anyone has hair questions or anyone has startup questions or marketing questions or growth questions shoot me a DM. I'm always happy to get back to you. Um, You never know. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade. Thank you.